Thank you for that uh, excellent reading of our passage for today. Holy Week. A week when we find ourselves betwixt and between. We know what has happened, yet we wait for that which is to happen. We think back to Holy Week as the disciples just a couple of days earlier had celebrated, had observed the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Now, that's what they expected. And if you want a good take on that, listen to last Friday's sermon. But that triumphal entry, Jesus coming in with the people praising Him as best as they knew how. Yet a couple of days later, here we are in the midst of Holy Week, just a couple of days away from the Passovers, the disciples knew the Passover was coming. This was not a new celebration. This was a part of their history. Year after year, they had celebrated the Passover, even before they knew Jesus. This year would be the, the third time since beginning to follow Jesus that they would celebrate a Passover together. And they had no idea what awaited them this week. Jesus had tried to give them clues along the way. In fact, at times I think he'd been rather direct, but they just couldn't hear. They couldn't grasp what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about another reality, a totally different understanding. So somehow they let that run through their filters and it came out on the other side saying what they wanted it to say. Now, I know that happens to none of us. But here we are, Holy Week. And... As we join Mark in this passage in Mark 14, as we go to the garden and we join the disciples, what a night. They've shared the, the Passover meal together where, well, somebody was a little embarrassed. Nobody was there to wash the feet and Jesus had washed their feet. Please, that, that can't be. But it had been. And, and even as they journey to the garden, already things have begun to happen. There's, there's a, a little bit of disappointment that's already taken place. Now, certainly the disciples don't understand, but now it's the 11 who are following Jesus to the garden. Judas has already gone on his way to do that which he was to do. Betrayal was already afoot. It was already in motion there in their midst. And as they come into the garden, Jesus tells the disciples, sit here while I go pray. Now, as the disciples sit to, to pray, certainly they're thinking about the Passover. It is the Passover night. This was the time year after year when they remembered what God had done to deliver the people of Israel. But this night, like all the nights in the lives of these disciples, there's a deep tension in the soul of the disciples because they're remembering stories of deliverance when they themselves are in a situation where they're hoping for a deliverer. They're hoping for someone to set them free from Roman oppression, someone who will move them to another place. And at least in this group, they're believing this could be the man. We followed Jesus for three years and, and we're thinking He is the Messiah. He is the one who will set us free from Roman oppression. But their understanding is so different. And Jesus tells them, sit here 
while I go pray. Now, if it had stayed there, it would have seemed pretty easy. Most of us are pretty good, well, sometimes. If we're told to sit and observe or just sit and wait while somebody else goes and to do the hard work, well, okay, yeah, we'll wait. We'll look forward to you coming back and bringing us the good report of your prayer life, how you have prayed, because we know you have access to the Father. We, we even asked you once to teach us to pray. Now, we haven't gotten it down yet, but, but you gave us this model, but you're really the master prayer. So sit here while I go pray. But then Jesus tells three, you know, the three, Peter, James, and John, come with me. The eight stay behind and they fade from the scene. We don't hear much else about the eight. But the three follow Jesus further into the garden. And there, Jesus begins to bear his soul as one only does with those who are closest to oneself. He begins to let them know how deeply distressed he is of the burden that he carries that night. And as he has bared his soul before them, then he asks one simple request. Just one request. Stay here and watch with me. Stay here and watch with me. Jesus in his humanity was saying, I need some help here. I'm in distress. I'm about to face the hardest thing I've faced in all of my life of eternity. Stay here and watch. And then Jesus goes a stone's throw away. Now, I was a baseball player. And I had a pretty good arm. I was a pitcher and a center fielder. So I had to be able to throw a baseball. And so from time to time, instead of throwing a baseball, I would throw a stone. And sometimes I was convinced I could throw a stone a pretty good distance. But you know, regardless of how hard and how far I threw that stone, unless I was standing on top of Grandfather Mountain, when I threw that stone, I always saw where the stone landed. If Jesus just went a stone's throw away, asking the disciples, stay here and watch with me. Did Jesus go out of sight? For years, that was kind of the image I think I had in my mind, that Jesus kind of disappeared, maybe on the other side of a big boulder, or somehow He went out of sight, yet He was just a stone's throw away. And then, as Mark describes to us what happens in this passage, this was not Jesus meek and mild saying, Father, if it's possible, could you let this cup pass from me? Rather, in the words of Mark, what Jesus has prayed here, He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible to Thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what Thou wilt. Not what I want You to do, but what you want and need to do. That's what I'm asking you to do here, Father. And in some of the other Gospels, gospels we're told of how distressed Jesus was, how intense this prayer must have been, because it says that His sweat drops were as drops of blood. 
Now, the scientists today tell us if you're under enough stress and enough anguish that actually the capillaries near the surface of the skin can begin to burst and you can sweat a sweat that is mingled with blood. That was the kind of distress that Jesus was under that night. So I have to imagine the kind of prayer that Jesus was praying was a fervent, passionate, heartfelt from deep within that only one who has felt it can understand. That kind of prayer is what Jesus was praying. And if He was only a stone's throw away, how in the world could the disciples not see? How did they not hear? How did they not perceive how deep Jesus' distress was that evening? So under such a circumstance, how could they fall asleep? Oh, it's, it's nice to sit in the seat of the judge and look back at the disciples and look, how in the world could you do that? Oh, but then I think of my own life and I remember the times and the situations where I've been far too much like the disciples. I mean, this is Jesus. This is powerful, mighty Jesus, the one who calmed the storm, the one who cast out the demons, the one who called Lazarus forth from the grave. This is Jesus, the Lord, the Master, the Messiah. Was there a little bit of a struggle for the disciples to even understand the kind of distress that Jesus was facing that evening, to somehow put that into a category that could make sense to them. So was there almost a sense of denial that fed into the physical slumber? It was easier to go, go to sleep than to watch than to pray with Jesus there in the garden. And apparently this was no brief prayer because when Jesus returns and He talks directly to one of the three, He addresses Peter. And He says, Peter, couldn't you tarry, couldn't you watch for just one hour? Now, if Jesus had just gone for a five-minute prayer and come back, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But if Jesus had been laboring in prayer for the last hour or more to come back and ask Peter, couldn't you watch for just one hour? Just for this little bit with me? Early on, Jesus shared His own distress. He was crying out for their support, but now He's already had a conversation earlier that evening with Peter. And Peter, he's got it under control. Jesus, these other 11, they may abandon you, but not me. I'll die with you. What was that, hour and a half, two hours, three hours ago? And right now, he's not been asked to die, at least not physically. But he certainly didn't die to his desire to sleep. He certainly didn't die to, to that unawareness. And here he was, not watching. He had failed to watch with Jesus, to be present, to be vigilant, to watch, to pray. But Jesus presses it a little further and says, Peter, if you can't do it for me, if you can't recognize my own distress, I want to encourage you to watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. It's coming. Watch and pray. If not for me, do it for yourself. And Jesus goes back to pray again. And even now when Jesus has given him that warning, 
Peter can't pull it off. He falls back asleep again. Jesus comes back to find them sleeping. The story repeats itself. There they are asleep, not watching, not praying, not interceding with Jesus. This time, he just goes back and prays a little longer and comes and wakes them up because it seems to be finished. But as I look at that evening, it's, there's a part of it where what I prefer to really focus on is what Jesus did. When I first started reading the passage and reflecting on it, thinking about the message for today, I was thinking, Jesus, travailing in prayer. This could be a great passage to call us to travail in prayer. Or I look at Jesus who says, not my will, but thine be done. A call to total obedience to God, to that total submission and walk with Him. And either of them could have been great sermons. But as I looked closer, what I saw in that passage, starting with the walk to the garden where it was 11 and not 12, begin to see betrayal, disappointment, frustration. I saw how deeply in the moment of His greatest need, those closest to Jesus, not the multitudes, not even, just the, not even the twelve as a whole group. Eight of them, maybe they did exactly what they were supposed to do. And maybe they sat there and the eight of them together talked about stories of the Passover. That's what they should have been doing that evening. And talking about how God had delivered the people of Israel and maybe even wondering, what's up with this deal tonight? What are these stories Jesus has been sharing with us? Or maybe there has been precedent of the other eight maybe needing to say, what's the deal with these three guys who were always getting separated out? Why did they get to go with Jesus and we're sitting here? We don't know. Mark, nor Matthew, nor Luke, nor John tell us the rest of the story. We have to wait for that. But the three, the three who were closest to Jesus, failed Him that night. They abandoned Him. They deserted Him in His moment of greatest need, in a moment when He had bared His own soul. And too often, I know that many of us face those kind of situations. Those situations where we're journeying through life and we think we've got a great friend, we think we have a great mentor, we think we have an incredible marriage, we think, and the disappointment comes. The failure comes. The deception, the desertion. And even then, Jesus understands. Because that night in the garden, Jesus understood what it meant to be left alone. What it meant to be disappointed by those closest to oneself. What it meant to be found in the midst of a journey where you desperately needed someone to come alongside to help you hold up your hands in the midst of that struggle, that battle, that time in ministry, that time in life. And there seemed to be no one. Yet even when everyone else abandoned Jesus, Jesus stayed true to His calling. He stayed true to the course. He connected with His Father and was able to tell His Father, Father, not my will. If it were up to me humanly, 
I'm ready to choose another path. Let's come up with some other strategy. Is there one, any strategy? Yet that night, he had been left alone. Part of Jesus' suffering was the suffering of abandonment, of disappointment, of desertion, even of those closest to him. And as I was reflecting on that passage, I thought of Paul's words in Philippians 3. As Paul is sharing his own testimony and his own willingness, and as the readers did so well with the text as it was prepared for them to see that contrast between Peter who says, everybody else may abandon you, but I'll die for you. And then Paul saying, I've laid it all aside, everything that was gained for me, everything that the world would count as my profit, as my success stories, all of that I lay aside with one clear goal. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know Him in the power of His resurrection. Isn't that glorious? We look ahead to Sunday and we think about the power of Jesus' resurrection. We're like, yes, Lord. I want to know You in the power of Your resurrection. I want the power of Your resurrection to show up Sunday so that people celebrate with me. I want You to show up in the power of Your resurrection on Sunday so the lame walk and the blind see and the sick are healed. I want You to show up in the power of Your resurrection so that... There wasn't a period there, was there? Yes, I want to know Jesus and the power of His resurrection. And participation in His sufferings. That night in the garden, the three were invited to participate with Jesus in His suffering. In those moments when Jesus taps your heart and stirs you deep within to intercede for a brother or sister in Christ, when Jesus opens the door for you to stand in the gap in ministry for someone else when it's not convenient, when it's not easy, when it takes you to places where you normally wouldn't want to go, you are being invited in to participate in the sufferings of Jesus. Do we really want to know Christ? If we take out that mental phrase, it'd be a whole lot easier to say yes. If it were about the power of His resurrection and attaining to the resurrection from the dead, oh, that would be glorious. But that mental part, that's where we really know Jesus. That's not a revelation for you today. Each and every one of us have gone through those spaces in life, those parts of the journey where it hurt where life was painful, where the circumstances were not what we would have chosen. But as we journeyed through that, and maybe some today are even right in the midst of that, that was the place where we begin to see and know Jesus as we had never known Him before. Where we begin to connect with Him at a depth. Where we begin to understand His kingdom. As Michael told us on Friday, His upside-down kingdom kingdom that doesn't match this world, a kingdom that leads to beatitudes that that's the blessed life, suffering is blessing, meek is blessed, 
poor is blessed. Yet Paul seemed to grasp it when he said, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know Him in the power of His resurrection and participation of His sufferings. Becoming like Him in His death. Jesus in Gethsemane once again died to His own will to fulfill the Father's will. And then later on the cross, He died physically. Where is it that Jesus invites us to know Him? And as we hear that invitation today, may we, like Paul, say yes. Yes, I want to know Christ in each and every situation, in each and every moment, in each and every place where God leads me, I want to know Christ. I want to know Him in the good and I want to know Him in the pain. I want to know Christ so that through me He can accomplish His purposes. Through my life He can be glorified. Through me, through my life, through this ministry that God will be glorified and that God's kingdom God's upside-down kingdom will be established. As we journey through our Passover this week, on the way to the cross, that leads to the resurrection, may we embrace our opportunities to know Christ. Amen.